Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Each of the last two Sundays, um, as Chad mentioned this morning, we've been looking at the idea of, com- <coughs> of compassion in the life and teaching of Jesus. And not just compassion in the life and teaching of Jesus, but what that means for us as Jesus' followers, right? Um, so the first week we considered compassion, the call, and then last week Chad brought a, a great message on um, compassion and the cost associated with it. And this morning what I want to do to complete this uh, short series is just talk about um, what the consequences are when we respond to the call of God to compassion and we're willing to bear the cost that goes with it. When we do those two things, there are real life consequences that take place and that help to advance the kingdom of God in the earth. And I want to just think about that uh, this morning. And just as we did last week, I want to look at another uh, of Jesus' really well-known parables. Uh, because in this parable we're going to read this morning, and just like last week, compassion is front and center. So let's just read it together. <coughs> it's found in Luke 15. I'm going to read verses 11 to 24. I should just say right up front, I'm not going to read the entirety of this parable. There's a piece on the end that I'm not going to deal with this morning. So just want to put that out there in case anybody thinks, hey, he's missed part of this. That's intentional, okay? So just a let, uh, verses 11 to 24, and this is what it says. <coughs> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. Or rather, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here am I starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, I want you to notice that this morning, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, <coughs> excuse me, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, before we get into this parable <coughs> and how it relates to this idea of the consequence of compassion, I want to take a moment to clarify something that I think will help us in our understanding of what Jesus is doing in telling this story. I said a moment ago that <coughs> this is referred to as the parable of the lost son, uh, son. And in some sense, contextually, if you look at the context of Luke 15, um, that makes sense because Luke 15 comprises three parables that Jesus told. And each of them focus on something lost. The first is the lost sheep. The second is the lost coin. And the third, the one we're looking at this morning, is the lost son. So there really is a basis for what the commentators do in some Bibles and uh, Bible translators uh, kind of subhead this particular parable as the story of the lost son, right? Because there's three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. But I want to say this to you this morning in reading this because most of us are familiar with this parable. We've read it many times. We've heard it preached on many times, I'm sure. That the greater and central truth contained in this parable <clears throat> is not the lost condition of the son, but his finding the compassionate love of the father expressed in unconditional acceptance. That, I believe, is the core of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And the son's lostness is just a vehicle for conveying the reality of what it means to find the compassionate love and the unconditional acceptance of the father. And in this case, the father in heaven. Now, one other thing while I'm on the subject. I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here just for a moment. In the past, and I think unfortunately sometimes in the present, this story is mistakenly, in my view, and inappropriately referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, why do I say mistakenly and inappropriately? Let me just expand on that a minute because I think if we understand where I'm going with this, we will better understand what it is Jesus is doing with the story. Let's think about that term prodigal for a moment. Does anybody know what the term prodigal means? Want to give a stab at it? <laughs> Shout it out. Huh? Wasteful? Good. That's good. That's, in fact, exactly what it means. The, worm, the word prodigal, what it does not mean is lost. It does not mean lost. 
The term prodigal that some translator or translators or commentator or commentators came up with back in the day is the best way to describe this story and put it in our Bibles and decided to use that word prodigal. The word prodigal actually means someone who spends money wastefully and extravagantly. In other words, someone who is a prodigal is wastefully or recklessly extravagant. That's what it means. It doesn't mean lost. It means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. Now, you may think, having heard what we read this morning, well, isn't that exactly what the son did? And I would say, in part, yes, it is. But that's not the focus of the story. Nor is it what Jesus most intended to convey. The point of the story is not the son's wastefulness or his reckless extravagance. The point of the story as it relates to him is simply that he's lost. And he wasn't lost because he spent wastefully and extravagantly or recklessly. He spent recklessly and wastefully because he was lost. Furthermore, he was in a lost state well before he left his father's house. His internal condition was one of being lost, which is why he went to his father and demanded his portion of the estate, then left and went and blew it all. That was the outgrowth of his internal condition. He was lost while he was still in the house. Had he not been, he never would have left. So describe this as a parable of the prodigal son, I think is to misinterpret this story and to miss the core of what Jesus is trying to communicate. That central truth I talked about a moment ago, and I want you to think about that this morning, of the, the compelling grip of this story is the compassionate love of the Father expressed in an, an embrace that speaks to his unconditional acceptance. That's the core of what's going on in this story. Personally, my view is we would be better off as Christians jettisoning the word prodigal from our vocabulary altogether, both, both as it relates to this story and applying it to our lives and when we're praying for others. God's loving focus is not narrowly confined, and when we use the term prodigal, this is what we're saying, to those who spend wastefully and recklessly his scope and his focus is much bigger than that. His love goes way beyond that. He's focused on all those who have lost their way. And as with the character in this story that we're focusing on this morning, there's actually two sons in this story. We're only focusing on the one that gets the most play here this morning. As in his case, that lostness can happen in the place of the father's home. That was true for both these sons. I told you at the beginning, I'm not going to focus on the latter part of this parable, which I didn't read. But if you read that later today, you'll notice that the other son, son that stayed in the home, that never demanded his portion of the state, didn't go and spend it recklessly and extravagantly and wastefully. He was just as lost, if not more lost, than the son that did that. And the exchange at the latter part of the parable makes it really clear. He did not understand the heart of his father or what he had access to. But that's for another time. You read that this afternoon and you'll see that that's the case. 
I also find it really compelling and interesting here that Jesus' two most famous parables, and I think they have become the two most famous, the one that Chad spoke to last week, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this one here, which is the parable of the lost son, that both of those parables have right at the center of them, right at the heart of the story, this thing called compassion. It's right there explicitly in the text in both parables. And that tells us something, guys. It tells us that compassion is at the very heart of our Father God. And he wants it to be at the center of ours too. When it comes to compassion, then, we've learned over the last two weeks, it's something God calls us to, and it's something that will cost us something. So what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is just think about what the consequence, what the outworking of compassion looks like when we respond to that call and we're willing to pay that cost. And the first thing I want you to see from this story is this, in relationship to compassion, that compassion, when it is ministered, means we will reach people where they are. We will reach people where they are. We will not require them to be some, somewhere other than where they are in order to reach them. Notice what the text said. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. That the imagery there is so vital and so beautiful. In order to understand the consequence of compassion reflected in this story, we have to look at the father in the story. Because he really does represent here for us our heavenly father. While he was a long way off, the father saw him. You know, that language tells us something. It tells me that the father was longing to see his son return. That the father was uh, waiting eagerly. Perhaps he was searching the road daily, hoping and anticipating his son's return. That he didn't just happen to see him uh, by a freak chance that he was looking in that direction. It tells me there was anticipation, there was focus, there was expectancy, there was hope. He was looking for his son to come back. Then one day, when he's a long way from home, the father's compassionate gaze rests on his son. He sees him. But he doesn't stop with a look. It says he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. He planted a big kiss right on his son. The same Greek word that we mentioned two weeks ago when we were talking about the call to compassion is the same word <clears throat> where compassion is used in the story of the Good Samaritan, and it appears again in this account of the lost son. And it's the Greek word, splanknizomai, and it just means, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, it means to be moved inwardly to the very core of our being, and so moved with love that we act 
on behalf of the person that's in need. And when it says the father was filled with compassion, that's the same word that's used here. In other words, that love was not enough for him to just sit back. He had to take action and move out to his son. Run to him, embrace him, kiss him. The father, in other words, did not wait for the son to make it home. He went to him where he was. Now granted, he had turned and he was starting to make his way back. But he was a long way off in the story, according to Jesus. No, he was filled with compassion and longing for his son. And he ran as fast as his legs could carry him to get to him. That's what I read in this story. So the consequence of real compassion, to begin with, is this. We, when we're moved by it, as the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us, we will reach people where they are. We won't wait for them to come to us. And as those, and if we're in Christ this morning, and we are, if you're in Jesus this morning, you have the privilege of dispensing compassion to others. And as we do that, we pursue those who are broken and hurting, whatever the cause, even when, perhaps especially when, they have brought that upon themselves, just like the son did in this story. He victimized himself here. He brought this condition upon himself. And yet the father was still compassionate towards him. We're not called to judge in self-righteousness. We're called to pursue with compassion. We're to do what the father did here. And what our heavenly father does and has done in our lives. And that is reconcile with love. You know, those who are not reconciled to God, God longs for them to be so. That's the whole point of Jesus' coming. And didn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, and yes, he did, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Those not reconciled to him, those who may not see the possibility of being reconciled to God, either because of where they are or what they've done, they think there's no way that can happen. And yet, deep down, they long to have the peace and that place of reconciliation with their Father God. So how can we go about helping that to happen? Well, first, as we said a couple weeks ago, we've got to respond to that call. When Jesus looked at the crowd, remember, two weeks ago, that were hungry, in compassion, he met their need. Last week, as Chad told us in the parable of the good samaritan the samaritan sees the man beaten and bloodied by the side of the road and unlike the others he doesn't cross the road or walk by he goes over and ministers to his need and it all begins with a look that's what the father did he looked with expectation with hope with longing and then when compassion got hold of him he moved out We have to first see what's there. We need the eyes of God through the Holy Spirit to see what's around us and what the Father is doing so that we can couple with him and what he's about and do what he's doing. Next, our hearts need to be filled with compassion through the Spirit, which will propel us forward to help. 
And that sometimes means, guys, we have to leave the place we're comfortable with in the moment, the place where we're secure, where our needs are being met, to go out and minister to those who are in a place of discomfort, who are in a place of great need. And we do it with reconciling love. Notice the father in the story expressed his love physically here. He threw his arms around his son and he kissed him. Those are physical demonstrations of his love. The genuine consequence of compassion for those that are in Christ in the mission of God is that first, we have to be intentional about reaching others where they are, pursuing them with a reconciling love. And what does that mean for us daily then? It means we have to do this. We have to first look at the circumference of our lives, our homes, our neighborhoods, our churches, our workplaces, the places where we recreate, the places of our daily routines. We need to look at those with the eyes of the Father and say, Father, what are you up to? How can I minister your compassion in the context of my family, in the context of my neighborhood, in the context of the place where I live, in the context of the places I hang out, the places of my daily routine? Because we all have that circumference of our lives. And it looks different for each of us. But the common reality is we all have that. And that's where we first need to look. But then we need to lift our eyes beyond the circumference of our lives. Because the mission of God is not just in the immediate where we are. It's much bigger than that, isn't it? There's a broader mission field that God is interested in reaching. (coughs) We need to be intentional about that too. So that people can be reconciled to God. Remember this. In Romans it says, God's kindness leads toward repentance. Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that brings people to a place of repentance. And his kind compassion facilitates not only repentance, but reconciliation to the Father. We've been called to be agents of that. Second thing I think I see in this story is We don't just, (coughs) excuse me, reach people where they are. We enfold them as they are. Look what it says. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And the son first tries to do the religious bit. He does. Tries to put his kind of religion in order at the beginning. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son, to be called your son. How does the father respond to that? Does he say, well, my boy, you know what? You finally came to your senses and you're right. You're an unworthy excuse of a son. You brought shame on me, on the family. And in the process, you blew your part of the estate that I gave to you. So you're right. You're not worthy to be my son. Now get to the servants' quarters. No, that isn't how he responded, is it? 
No, instead of condemning the son and consigning him to a place of dishonor, he enfolded the son into the family. And he honors him with the best robe, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. These are all emblems of belonging. And that's not all he does. Then he says, let's celebrate. And he throws this huge party. The father in the story, I don't believe, was listening to the words of the son when he said, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I don't think he was even listening to his words because he'd already seen his heart. His heart had already turned. And what he wanted to do was embrace him, accept him, bring him in, enfold him again into the family. He didn't want to set up a series of religious hoops for him to jump through. He wasn't interested, listen to me please with this one, he wasn't interested in religious confession. He wanted a restored relationship. That is the heart of our Father God. And his welcome made it possible for this son to be fully enfolded into the family again. He didn't have to head his, he didn't have to head, he didn't have to hang his head in shame. Because the father lifted up his head with genuine love and a heartfelt welcome. And doesn't the scripture say of our God that he's the lifter up of our head? Yes, he is. And one of the ways he does that is by ministering compassion to us. So the consequence of compassion is we'll always, when we're operating in the spirit and propelled by the spirit, enfold people as they are. And it's our privilege as those that are in Christ who've been given this ministry to welcome those, however weak, however lost, however needy, who make a simple and sincere response in their heart to the Father in heaven. They may still be hanging out with the pigs. That's where the son was when he came to his senses. He was with the pigs. They may still be eating the pods the pigs eat. That's where he was. But somehow in their brokenness, they've come with the drawing of the Holy Spirit to their senses and they turned in their heart and they're going to start a journey back to the Father. We're not called to judge and exclude. We're called to welcome and enfold. That's the heart of God. This means we're to do what the Father did in the story and what our Heavenly Father always does, what He's done for each of us. He's enfolded us into His family. Amen? And not only that, to celebrate with joy. You know, each and every person and each and every occasion when someone turns to the Father needs to be celebrated with joy. If you read the rest of Luke 15 and the other two parables before this one, the lost sheep and the lost coin, at the end of each of those parables, Jesus says something to this effect. Not quoting exactly, but this is the gist of what he says. He says, there's celebration in heaven when one person responds and turns to the Father. And repents. He says there's celebration in heaven. In fact, he even says 
There's more celebration over one person turning to the Father than 99 righteous people that don't need to. What does that tell us about our Father God's heart? I love that. The reason heaven rejoices is because heaven is the realm and the dominion and the place of the Father in heaven. So that's why the angels have a ball when people turn to the Father, because that reflects the heart of the Father, the desire of the Father. I want you to notice again, the son was already part of the family. He was already in the Father's house before he ever said, give me my half of the estate and took off. He returned to the place that all along was his. And he was celebrated and he was received with joy. As a church, we're called to do that, to celebrate and be joyous. We're called to be a people who welcome those who in their journey have got lost along the way. Whether they're already part of the family or whether they're new to it. If they are seeking the embrace of the Father, if they're willing to turn, and we don't have to wait for that to happen, to love them and to reach out to them with compassion. As followers of Jesus, we're to be a people that welcome others and enfold them into the life and the riches of their inheritance in Christ. If we enfold people as they are, with welcome and celebration and joy, you know what happens then? They become, I believe, what it is that the Father always intended for them to be. In other words, that welcome, that reception, that enfolding allows them, having been affirmed, to then go on to become and to grow and to develop and to be what God intends for them. And then we, be the, we will then be the kind of church that God intends for us to be in that respect. All right, here's the third and final thing I want you to see this morning. We're to accept people for who they are. The text says, for this son of mine, I love this personal declaration here, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is like the wonderful climax of the story. Even though there's still an encounter between the father and the other son that we haven't read this morning at the tail end of this parable, this really is the climax of the story. It's the final consequence of compassion in the life of the son that was lost and that took off. The father, having reached him by pursuing him when he was a long way up, having enfolded him into the family by welcoming back, now he accepts his son, affirming him as his own. Those are powerful and loving words. This son of mine, he identified with him. He said, he's my son. He affirmed him in his true identity. And that was a consequence of compassion, of love in action. He's not just any son. He's the father's son. 
And you know, that, that affirmation for people, when we speak into someone's life and we, we say to them who they are in God, it brings forth something in their life. It affirms them. We're also told in Romans that our God is the one who calls those things or not as though they were. We have the opportunity to call forth in people's lives through loving compassion that which is true even when it doesn't look like it on the outward. Isn't that wonderful? That's the way that God is with us. That's what he's done with us. The consequence of genuine compassion, the compassion of Christ, is that we will always accept people for who they are. Now, this doesn't mean we affirm things that people are doing that aren't godly. Of course not. But that's not the issue. The issue is accepting the purpose, the person, so that they can become all that God intends for them. We affirm those who belong to the Father, even when they've got a little bit off track in the journey. We do not make acceptance and identity contingent on religious performance or some required past standard. If that was the case, applied to this son, he was history. We affirm our brothers and sisters who have been adopted into the family of God just as we have been adopted into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. And we declare their positive place and position in Christ. It's not our job, guys, to remake people in our image. That is a disaster waiting to happen. That's not our job. We are to recognize that each person has been created in the image of their God, of the one true God, and notwithstanding their brokenness, and listen, we're all broken, Notwithstanding their brokenness, they have been recreated in the image of their God through the redemptive work of Christ. That's true for each one of us that, are, that belongs to Jesus, isn't it? We have been new, made new creations. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. That is the redemptive work of Jesus for us. So our job as those that are called to the ministry of compassion, is to restore with grace those who have been alienated from God, those who have lost their way in life and in the journey, sometimes in the journey with God. In the story, and I end with this, what the Father most wanted and what happened in this story was full restoration. You know, God's not into partial restoration. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody do this in person or you've seen something on TV, a documentary maybe, when they take an old painting and they go about the process of restoration. And it's meticulous. And it's amazing the stuff they have to do to restore a what may have at one, one point been a masterpiece, but for all kinds of reasons, maybe neglect, What's happened to the painting in the meantime, it's not what it once was. And along comes the restorer and spends time meticulously cleaning off all the gunk that has collected. 
on what was once maybe a masterpiece in a beautiful painting. And eventually, with time and care and love and commitment, that painting gets restored. When they do that, they're not looking to partially restore the painting. They're looking to restore the whole thing so the glory of that image can be seen again. And the handiwork of the artist can really be appreciated for what it truly is. That's exactly what God does in our lives. God is not into partial restoration. Thank God. Thank God. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, what he began in us, he will bring to fruition. That is a statement of full restoration in Jesus. Fully forgiven. Fully set free. Fully alive. Fully a part of his family now and forever. You know, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he said this, and his grace was not without effect. So there's two things he's saying there. One, in my identity, I am who I am because of the grace of God. But the second thing he's saying is that grace that established me in an identity in Christ was not without effect in my life. It began a process of transformation that continued throughout his life. That's what God is doing with us. That's what God wants to do through us in the lives of others as we extend the compassion of Christ to them and to one another. And that's our joy. So think about that. Compassion is at the core, at the center of the heart of God. It was at the center of the ministry of Jesus in his teaching and in his doing. There's a call to it. We've all been called to it if we're in Christ. There's a cost, as Chad laid out for us last week. There's no such thing, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, as cheap grace. It costs something to be compassionate. It may be uncomfortable. It may take your time, your resources, and other things, as we heard last week. But, boy, there is a beautiful set of consequences that take place. Compassion is consequential. When it happens and it's steered by the Holy Spirit in our lives, we reach people where they are. We pursue them. We reconcile them with love. We enfold them into God's family, and we celebrate with joy when we do it, as heaven is doing. And then we just accept people for who they are. We don't try to recreate them. We let them be the very creation that God intended them to be and his full work of restoration will take place in their lives and it'll all be because of grace. Amen? 